If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Keith Giles. I'm the author of several books, um, including most recently, Jesus Undefeated, uh, Condemning the False Doctrine of Eternal Torment. And I am joined by my much more high-energy co-hosts, Jamal and Matt. Guys, say hi. Hi, friends. This is Jamal. Keith, you need to cheer up, man. Because Listen, somebody somebody said something you know, about how they... That I had too much, I was too chipper. So I was just trying to calm it down. Oh, that's so nice. That's nice of you to do that. But I have good news that may cheer you up. Okay. On uh, this past Saturday, the Buckeyes defeated University of Michigan for the eighth straight time. We blew them out over 20 points. Oh my God. Who the hell cares? <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> and it's good to be back on the Heritage Cap Hour with you guys. Well, I mean, in other news, uh, it. it, for, it for things that that you guys all care about, my name's Matt. I know y'all don't care about the Ohio State Buckeyes, but I know you care about me, and I've got a new book called Devoted as Fuck. So, yeah, go pick, go pick that up. It's a perfect Christmas gift. Uh, so please do that. Uh, so happy again to be on another episode of the Heretic Happy Hour. Yeah, well, yes, it is. And by the way, uh, we are in the middle of a series here. Uh, we're doing a series called Culture Wars. Uh, so we're going to be talking about a lot of things, you know, having to do with the culture and the, and the world we're living in today, you know, really fresh, hip, we know all the stuff that kids are talking about. (laughs) Totally. Yes. And did you guys have a good Thanksgiving holiday? Hmm. Yeah. It was okay. Yeah. It was was pretty good. Pretty good. Well, we, we had a great one here, but man, we got pounded with like over two feet of snow here in the mountains. Lost power. Nobody could, nobody could like you know, heat wouldn't come on or anything like that. So we had that actually be, we were locked out of our house for about three or four days. So staying down the mountain, but, um, people who have phone lines in their house didn't, weren't able to make phone calls. So if that was you, you weren't able to call in the hotline. So I apologize for that. But if you have a cell phone, you know, you're probably okay. So I want to talk about the hotline for a second. We do have a hotline. And if you have cell phone coverage or if your landlines are connected you're not in storms you can call this number 240-343-7379 and i believe we have a text that came in can we cue that up okay this is from a listener could you guys cover tithing and giving and the lies associated with paying tithes i've been told i'm cursed if i don't i've been told i can't go to heaven and jesus was a tither and much more I listened to the podcast you guys have here on it, but could you guys expound on the lies associated in fear tactics involved to keep people paying up? Thanks so much. Your show is such a blessing and the place of refuge. <clears throat> it's not easy speaking truth. God bless. Mm. Yeah. Hmm, what do yeah. you guys think? Well, yeah, I mean, we have an episode, uh, but the listener says that they listened to the episode, so I'm not exactly sure. What else we can say on it, except go back and listen to it. If you go to heretichappyhour.com, click on episodes, search for the keywords, you will find that in episode 37, we talked about it. So I'm not sure exactly what else to add. Yeah. 
for what we said in that episode. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what else there is to say other than I think we covered it. If we did a whole episode on it, I'm pretty sure I remember we covered it in pretty much in depth where it all comes from and all the history surrounding mm-hmm. it. And um, basically, bottom line, don't do it. <laughs> don't tie. <tithe. laughs> you know, I, I, yeah, I don't know much. I think we cut, it's pretty exhaustive on that. If I, um, if I can remember correctly, but yeah, yeah, I hope so. Yeah, for sure. Um, I actually, that's all you're going to get from us. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Unless, unless of course you want to give towards the, uh, you know, if you want like to give, if you, we have a, we have a, we have a Patreon page. If you want to give to, then we may, you know, not let you stay cursed and may address the issue for you, but yeah, there you go. But it, but if you if you don't, you yeah. might go to hell. I'm just saying. But, but, but if you do, but if you do give to the Patreon page, you will be blessed. That's true. <laughs> yeah, uh, a thousand. Totally. Well, you know, but because you get bonus content, right? And you get a bunch of cool stuff. So, there you go. Yeah, yeah you know, can I, I can I make one real cool, maybe one comment about this? Okay, because I know the listener listened to the podcast about it, and I get it. It sounds like I mean, I think when people ask questions, it's because they're bothered. There's something that's eating at them, and. That's what I'm. I'm. I'm intuiting that this this listener is like he's hearing things. He's been he's being t- told that he's cursed. He's been told that he can't go to heaven and all that kind of thing. Well, I mean, we can. Like, there are there are pushbacks. There are arguments against all of that that we presented in the podcast. But I would just say this to the listener: if you're listening to this, sounds like you need to stop listening to that stuff. <laughs> Like, like, yeah. If I was in your shoes, I'd be like, okay, are you going to some church where they're teaching this? Like, why are you? Why do you go? Seriously, why do you do it? You need yeah, to stop ask. Here. You know, or if there's people in your life that are kind of telling you that, then you know, you can love people, but you also don't have to put up with uh, that kind of. You don't have to put up with that those conversations. So you can literally draw a yeah. boundary and just say, okay, yeah, I'm not really interested in that conversation. So that would be the only thing that comes to mind is like, look, if you already know the arguments, if you're sold on it in, internally, but yet you're hearing this and you want more ammunition to argue with them. I just don't think that's very fruitful. I, you know, you can, you can win an argument and yet it doesn't solve anything. So Mike, I, I think for your own peace of mind, you might want to just ask the question, like, can I get out of, get out of Dodge here a little bit and just let them be where they're at and I be where I'm at and, you know, cut your yep. losses in that sense. Yep. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Along. We got we got something else. We got something else on this hotline business. I, I do. I think we have a voicemail. Hi, Keith, Matt, Jamal. My name is Adam. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee. I'm a huge fan of the show. I love listening to it. And the uh, podcast and the adjacent groups on Facebook have been a huge blessing to me and working out and under, better understanding my faith. Um, I wanted to be able to pick y'all's brains a little bit about kind of some stuff I've been questioning. From what I understand, y'all identify as universalists, and as for me, I'm kind of a weird place on the subject. I grew up Southern Baptist, so definitely grew up with the hellfire damnation, and about, what, maybe five, six years ago or so, I um, kind of found myself being drawn more towards the doctrines of annihilationism and conditionalism, essentially essentially believing that the wicked, instead of burning forever in hell with eternal conscious torment that they simply cease to exist and that the immortality of the soul is in itself conditional. But for the past, like, year or so, I've been questioning even that. Um, I kind of find myself in this place, I personally refer to it as kind of being pulled towards universalism, kicking and screaming. Not sure what it is that makes me object to it. Maybe it's the idea that evil somehow has to be punished at the end, 
Maybe it's just my old Southern Madness roots flaring up. I'm not sure what it is. I find myself being drawn a little bit toward what I believe is uh, Rob Bell's theory in Love Wins, although unfortunately I have yet to read that. But I think it's the idea that <clears throat> everybody goes to the same place, but how it's experienced determines whether it's heaven or hell for that person. But I kind of wonder if even that's good enough. So what I wanted to ask y'all is, uh, since I've, I remember um, a lot of y'all saying you kind of came from very similar places in your faith journeys, what were y'all's biggest obstacles in getting towards an idea of uh, universalism, and how did you uh, reconcile with those and get past those? So anyway, I'd uh, love to hear your thoughts. Thank you so much uh, for the show. Keep doing what you're doing. God bless. Love y'all. Bye. Awesome. That's a great question. It is a, it is a good question. Um, yeah, I think I think the, what, what he was describing as the uh, the Rob Bell position is really just the Eastern Orthodox. I don't know if that's Rob Bell's position, but it sounded more like the Eastern Orthodox position that everyone goes into the presence of God. Some experience that as bliss, and and some experience that as torment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know Eastern Orthodox are more open to the idea of universalism. Obviously, we had we had David Bentley Hart, who's Orthodox. He's a universalist. Yep. Brad Jersak, and he's more in the universalist camp, although he doesn't like that word, and he explains why. Um, honestly, for me, like the first time I heard universalism, I was on board because it was just something that resonated with my soul, and I didn't really have any hiccups <laughs> like the caller had. I don't know about you guys. I, I the first time I heard, it, I was like, "Oh my god, this is amazing!" Mm-hmm. And then just kind of like studied more and studied more and studied more and realized that it seems like a reasonable position. Um, yeah. So I never had that sort of, I'm wrestling with this and I'm key. I, I never, I never went to universalism kicking and screaming. Hmm. Yeah. I, um, I definitely did. I did go through the similar to the caller, Adam. Uh, I raised Southern Baptist was, you know, believed eternal torment because that's the only option I was ever given. Uh, so of course that was the biblical, you know, correct Christian view. Um, so it was only probably about maybe five or six years ago, uh, I had someone blow my mind with some some things that I'd never known before, like that the majority view of the, of the Christian church for 500 years was universalism. What? Um, that there were three Christian views from the very beginning of church history. What? Um, like, so the, that was the beginning for me of like kind of weakening my my belief in eternal torment. I... I briefly went from that to annihilationism, kind of like what the caller did. Um, And I I held on to annihilationism for a while. But then the more I continued to read and study and looking at these scriptures that supposedly teach eternal eternal torment, I realized that's not what they're talking about at all. Jesus is not talking about what what happens to anyone after after they're dead. That's not what he did. Well, it's just the point. I mean, two quick things. Um, If you're looking for proof in the Bible— for scriptures, right? For eternal torment, you will find nothing in the Old Testament. And yet when Jesus, who supposedly speaks more about hell than anybody else, uses phrases like, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched and weeping and gnashing of teeth and the smoke of their torment rises forever, he's quoting verbatim passages from the Old Testament, which, by the way, says nothing at all about eternal torment. So what the heck is he talking about? It's not about where anyone goes after they're dead. Um, Anyway, I, I, I talk about all this stuff in my book, um, that I that just came out, Jesus Undefeated, which looks at all three views 
And then after I did, I mean, after I personally went through this process and looked at all through the scriptures and are they really saying what we think they're saying? Um, I turned the corner into universalism and now I'm, that's where I'm at. I, I pretty much now fully believe that that is what Jesus is teaching. That is what Paul is teaching. Um, and I try to make a case for it in my book. So. Yes, yes, yes. Well, it's a great, it's a great question. I think for me, a couple things stick out. One was, um, well, first of all, I think there's a misnomer. Once you get past the label, I mean, you would hear the label universalist and like nobody wants to be labeled a, once you label somebody, then the label itself becomes a thing people either try to defend themselves from or run from or whatever. Um, but once I started to look past the label and go, okay, well, what's, why is everybody afraid? Because in the evangelical world, because you know, I went to Southern Baptist University, uh, and in that world, and, and when I was a pastor, and this, you know, we, we weren't Southern Baptist per se, but you know, doctrinally and belief wise, we did align with them. And <clears throat> the idea is, you know, once we got past, the, once I got past the term universalist, I started to ask the question, like, well, wait a minute. What does it? What does the term even mean? And it means something that applies to all people. That's really what a universalist is. It's that it's it something applies universally to everybody. So then I started to realize, like, well, based on that definition, all Christians, or specifically evangelical Christians, are universalists. So when someone says you're a universalist, meaning you're, the other person's not, that's false. Everybody is a universalist. Speaking in the Christian world, because, and again, I'm talking about people who believe the Bible and follow the Bible. All Bible followers are believers. You have to be a universalist because Paul says, and I'm quoting the verse from Paul, it says um, that just as sin or death passed to all mankind through one man, speaking of the story in Genesis, referencing Adam. So that's just as sin passed to all mankind, that's universal, something universally applied to all humanity, death. Sin passed to all, all humanity and all men died so much. And I'm you know, paraphrasing here, but how much more will the, you know, the obedience or the sacrifice or however you want to put that of one man talking about Jesus give life to all mankind? So those are universal propositions. Mm -hmm. So an evangelical mm -hmm. would say, oh, well, that doesn't really mean all. All doesn't really mean all. But they do mean that. All does mean all for the death. Because you won't hear an evangelical say, death passed to some men, some mankind. They right. actually believe that it applies universally right. to all. So there's the universalist. So I started to ask myself, do I want to be a universalist when it comes to death or when it comes to life? There you go. Some people are, <clears throat> some people are universalists when it comes to death. So that, to me, was a game-changing realization. Like, oh, they, they are preaching the message of universal death to all humanity. And only a few <clears throat> get the life part. Well, that's that doesn't sound like very good news to me. No. And you know, so that's what opened my eyes in that sense. The other thing that really changed me fundamentally, <clears throat> you know, out of that camp of, you know, selective, you know, limited atonement, or you know, however you want to put that, really was when I got to, and it was a gradual, wasn't any one aha moment. I started to get to know who I was myself, and then as, as the more I got to know me as a as a being, the more I realized that death is an illusion. That there's no such thing as death. There can be no such thing as death when you understand who you are. There's no such thing as, you know, obviously this idea of being tortured. I mean, once you get rid of the pagan idea of God, that just goes out the window. But, but when you realize like, how could you as a being be annihilated? 
how can you as a being not exist? It's fundamentally impossible. And this is, I'm speaking from my understanding here. I, that's fundamentally impossible when you understand the nature of your own being. And which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit in today's topic, but that's really what did it for me. I was like, oh, once you get to know who you are, as you know your essence, that you, the the fundamental essence about you being you is that you cannot die. You have no end. Yeah, it's a it's a good, um, it is a very interesting, very fascinating topic, and great question, Adam. Thank you so much for even bringing it up. So with that, it's time to get into our topic, and we're going to kick it off. By, of course, having our Heretic of the Week. It's the Heretic of the Week. Hi, I'm Meg Calvin, and I am a heretic. Hi, Hi Meg. Meg. Good morning, good morning. Yes. Meg, it's, yes, it is a lovely morning. How is it out there We're in your neck of the woods? It is well. It is well. I do have a request for, for the Bonfire Session host for you. Oh, you're just going to jump right in, huh? Okay. Yeah. My request is for you to stop heckling our guests on our podcast. Heckling? Heckling. Ooh. I don't remember. <laughs> Matt, what we, did you do? I, you have to refresh my memory because I we might we might drink we might drink on the show. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> not sure. Not you sure. You don't remember. He does he doesn't remember. Our clean comedian that we had on the listening chair that you kindly heckled a bit on social media. Oh, well, yeah, not on the show itself. Okay, well, I, I, I wasn't heckling her. I just was making a joke about clean comedians. I don't find them funny. I didn't mean to offend anyone. No, no offense. No offense. I was joking. <laughs> maybe, I should, maybe I should do a little heckling of, um, of your man crush, David Bentley Hart, on social media. Oh, oh really? well, you're good, good luck. You're Watch on your own out. there. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. I, don't, I wouldn't recommend that. That's not a good idea. You're going to poke a bear. Poke a bear. <laughs> yes. Well, okay. Well, with that said, Meg, uh, thanks for coming onto the show and returning the favor. We've all been on on your show, the Listening Chair, a couple times, and now we're honored to have you. So, so welcome. There will be no heckling, I promise. Uh, well, I don't promise. There might be. Um, but let's 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 get right into it and uh, and and ask you why people would consider you a heretic. Yes. Well, I believe the pyramids were made by aliens. Uh, no, that's. But they were. Wait, for real? <laughs> no, I'm just joking. I thought they were. <laughs> totally joking. Yeah, I think, um, in all seriousness, the probably the four, top four, but brief reasons I might be considered a heretic by some, by many, I'm owning it, would be that I believe that God wants us to use our brains and to take control of our emotional health by owning how we were wired and aligning our environment to honor that. Secondly, I believe that we don't have to love everyone that we meet, (laughs) that we can love people differently, and that we can have a different set of standards and boundaries with different relationships in our life, as opposed to the prior belief that I used to have, and that was that it was my job to be the love of the Lord to every single human being that came my way. So I no longer have that belief. The third reason I might be a heretic is I believe that confidence and ambition and self-love are not only beautiful, but they're godly and they're divine and they're the furthest thing from sinful. And I think a lot of Christians would disagree with me on that and believe that the godliest thing you can do is to give all, every single ounce of credit to God and not take ownership as a co-creator with God. And that some Christians believe it's it's godly to shrink back and to cloak your gifts when really that that offers no no good, no healing to anyone. 
And uh, I think the last one <laughs> that that shouldn't be heretical, but it it is, and I think I'm the most nervous about this part in in this upcoming book is that I I call out purity culture and call out the lies that it tells. And so, um, yeah, I might I might lose some some friends and followers <laughs> on on those things those those four things. Well, that's a mouthful. Wow. But you had, you had a long list there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. Totally. Well, Meg, first of all, it's Jamal. But we, you know that just for the listeners. But it's it's really good to um, hear you talk about why you're a heretic. And I, if, if I understand correctly, you come from a long line of heretics. Is that correct? I do. Am I allowed to share that story? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> and you are. <laughs> it has been decreed. It's such a beautiful story. I think it's beautiful and sad at the same time. Um, and it's been on my mind a lot lately, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, when I, when I was applying for seminary, when I was a youngin, um, my, my grandmother pulled out this, this box and it was research she and her brother had been doing on our ancestral line. That's a fun word to say, ancestral line. And she showed me that my ancestors on my matriarch on the, my mother's side, go back to Scotland. And in 1775, there was a couple named the McNains, who I am of their blood, the McNain couple, and they were burned at the stake by Catholics. Woo! No offense, Catholics. We love you. Um, for, they were burned at the stake by Catholics for writing Protestant literature that really rocked the boat. Mm. Yeah. I tell you what, look, I, 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 uh, all the time we've been doing this now, like we've been doing this Heretic Happier podcast for more than two years. Yeah. We've interviewed dozens of heretics, but I think, Meg, you are the, you should get some kind of a medal because I don't think we've ever had anyone on the show who is literally related to someone who was actually burned at the freaking stake yep. for being a heretic. That is huge. Oh, that's awesome. Hmm. Awesome. Well, my, my, my medal is working with choir. I think, I believe. <laughs> there you go. That's your prize. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that. I don't know if you have ancestral stories that bring you bravery and bring you gumption, but that one, that one definitely brings me lots of, of gumption and bravery as I forge ahead with new work that I feel I was divinely nudged to do. Isn't that great? That that's, oh. that's really amazing how it's almost like you, the, 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 our life extends in some way beyond our own current life. You know, like you're almost completing or working, working out something that was began generations ago, you know? in your ancestors. It's really mm -hmm. pretty interesting. I think that's fascinating. Also, I'm really excited yeah. about your book coming out and it's titled, I am my own sanctuary. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. So first of all, I, I love that title. Yeah. I love the title. Um, first and foremost, because it starts with, I am, it's really interesting that I, I mean, I'm sure you, you, you're brought up in the Christian tradition, but whenever we think of God, we're always, I've always been taught to think of God as, as a you are, as there God is out there somewhere, and we relate to God as this separate being out there in the universe somewhere. And I always find the term "I am" to be really provocative because you can't say the name unless you actually use it in the first person. You actually can't say it, but we're taught to say it in the second, like second person, but it's really first person. So it's really interesting to me that be still and know that I am. God, like if you can't actually say that and mean it and without it being heresy in the Christian world. But it's really interesting to me that your that your title of your book is Be Still and Know that 
or not be still no, but the I am my own sanctuary. So it's like, wow, you are your own sanctuary. Um, that's very provocative. Um, and I don't know that you, I mean, what went into that title? Like, can you just talk about that a little bit? Because the sanctuaries for millennia has been is something else. It's in the Jewish world, it was the temple or in the Christian world. It's you go to church and even we have a name for the place where the magic happens every Sunday, which is called the sanctuary. You walk in there and that's where everybody sits and listens to the pastor and sings the songs and that kind of thing. But you, are you saying that you're your own sanctuary? Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It has been my life motto for almost eight years now. And I first saw the quote in Latin. And of course it was so much prettier in Latin. I don't speak Latin, but it's prettier in Latin. And it was as many of you out there who do speak Latin can can already know it or already do know it's ego sanctuario mio. And I, when I read that, I thought this is not only my life motto, but it's also my identity that I really need to start living into. Mm. And so I, I carried it as my life motto for, like I said, almost eight years until, um, and then it just became a perfect title for this book. And the reason I was so obsessed with that, that statement was I had noticed in a lot of spiritual or religious circles that, as I shared before, a lot of people, there were lots of voices that considered ambition and self-care and self-love as, as sinful and as ungodly and dirty. And I was also confused as an, at an early age how by how many ministerial leaders lacked this sense of grit mm. or grace. And they any form of grit they had came from wanting to appease or impress others and just total burnout, just utter burnout, just a total disconnect in in pastors and other ministerial leaders, a disconnect of who God made them to be and making time to tune in to that voice within and honor that. And so um so we talked we were talking about Carl Jung before we went on air and you know, in psychology, we have this phrase, we have this concept, this goal of being differentiated humans. Mm -hmm. And what that means is we have this healthy balance of autonomy and togetherness that we can, we can be safe within our own self. Um, we can be at peace, regardless of the chaos of the poor choices of the hurtful words of the fickle moods around us. If we're a differentiated person, we can be um, unaffected and find grace and grit within. And so that also went into why I loved that saying. That was my motto was because I, str I was struggling. I struggled so hard at being a, a differentiated person. I made every decision based off the mood of the person I was with at the moment. And, um, and then the second, this, and this is unpacked in the first chapter of the book, the second undercurrent of the title and my life motto is that we often forget that the divine dwells within us. And so taking ownership of that and mm -hmm. being your own sanctuary. And I know, I know that the title is going to ruffle some feathers and you're welcome. <laughs> um, <laughs> just kidding. Yes. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I purposely made the longest chapter in the book over relationships. And that is, that is totally intentional. And that's part of the art form of what I was trying to do with the book, but I'm in no way arguing that we don't need community, that we don't need corporate worship, that we don't need relationships and, and whatnot, that it's, that we don't need to think about the needs of others, but there's a way I unpack that in the book of way that of honoring this arsenal. If I can use that phrase, this arsenal of grit and grace that we already have within us mm. and we just need to own it. Yeah. And so 
Meg, yeah. well, I, I love that. I personally, personally, just this idea, I love the, what you, what you unpack in the book about grit and grace. And I, I really appreciate you talking about that from a ministerial standpoint, because, oh my goodness, I mean, pastoral burnout, like in the clergy world is astronomical. And I think it's, right. it's, it's precisely because, you know, I think people don't know, or we, we've not really learned, um, how to be at home within ourselves because our we are ourself the source of grit and grace because of, again we are we we literally are the, are the carriers of the divine but if we're like do you think here's a question though okay. how much does being taught that we are um that there's something wrong with us that there's something fundamentally flawed with us how how much of that un like maybe it's not conscious but unconsciously keeps us on the run we look for adulation. We look for, we're trying to hit a mark. We're trying to be successful. We're trying to do all that stuff out there. How much does that keep us from ourself? Do you think? A lot. <laughs> well, <laughs> thanks for playing. A lot. <laughs> and, and can you, and, and, and why do you say that? Yeah. Yeah. I think when you, when someone is raised with the belief that they are depraved and wretched and totally broken, Whenever they have an idea that is divine and they need to steward that creativity, they need to birth that idea into the world for the healing of themselves, for the healing of others. I have noticed that if they if they totally lack confidence in themselves because the religious circle they've been in has told them that they are broken and depraved and wretched and sinful, they they will be hindered from chasing that goal, from birthing that idea. They will be hindered from that because they don't believe that they have the skill set to do it. They they could think that it would be egotistical of them to think that is that they are good enough to do that. It would be, and it's just their ambition driving them, not this divine creativity that's moving through them. So yeah, it would it would hold them back from not only reaching their fullest potential of emotional health and self-love, but it would hold them back from literally <laughs> I watched too much Parks and Rec. Literally, mm. it would hold them back from literally helping others find yeah. find healing with their work. Yes, yeah, it's, it's I'm really glad mm. your book is going to tackle mm. this topic, Meg, because what's been, what I've noticed um I've been doing this square one program, this 90-day program with people trying to help them move from deconstruction to reconstruction. Right. And one of the one of the major factors that we we uh, I've noticed and that we we're, we're talking about is exactly what you're talking about, like how religion um, because it's all about fear and control. It also, it teaches us, it trains us. I mean, it, 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 it really almost it brainwashes us into believing the lie that there's no good in me, right. that I'm a worm, that I'm worthless and, and anything good that happens. Oh, glory to God. That wasn't me. That was Jesus. But if anything, of course, if any negative thing that happens, well, oh, that's my sinful flesh. That's my true self. <laughs> and, and so, and so because of that, when we deconstruct that, you know, we start deconstructing that sort of fear-based control, manipulation, religion, garbage. Um, so that's good. We deconstruct the belief system, but we hang on, unfortunately, to that sort of brainwashing. Uh, and so we now need to also then relearn or maybe learn for the first time. It's not relearning. We've never learned. We need to start to learn how to, to trust ourselves, to say that if I have an idea, it's a good idea. If I have a desire, that's a good desire. If I, you know what I mean? So not to mistrust and second guess all the time. And it's really, really hard to do that. So 
I'm glad your book is addressing that. And I'm, I'm curious, like, would you, do you have any like specific advice for someone who's in that space of like, mm-hmm. how can they do that? What are, what are the things that they can do to sort of uh, retrain their brain or, or get back into this place of learning how to, um, you know, not to mistrust themselves, but to really have some, some faith in their own desires and, and, um, you know, their inner goodness. Oh yeah. Um, there's lots of advice in the book, <laughs> but, um, yeah, the, the first thing that comes to mind, well, uh, to no surprise, three things come to mind, but which of the three is worth sharing on this interview? <laughs> okay. The first thing that comes to mind that I'm going to share that, no, I'll share one. Cause you asked for one. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, no, either we you know, fine. Two or yeah, three is fine. Yeah. I think what comes to mind is th- first off, I'll start with the, in- the intro introspective relationship. How do you talk to yourself? What does your inner monologue sound mm-hmm. like? And once again, mm-hmm. nothing new there, but keeping that in, in, in check and also reevaluating your relationships. And in, in the book, I unpack these three tiers of relationships and how that is healthy <laughs> to have different tiers of relationships, different standards, different expectations, different boundaries, and check with yourself how often during your week are you around people that that build you up, that make you feel loved, um, and then that love you outside of your talents and love you outside of your work, but also but also understand and support your work and your ideas and want you to reach your full potential and, and want you to own it, that you are this this badass, creative, divine being that God is just waiting on you to wake up and own your power. Uh-huh. <laughs> so check in with how you talk to yourself and your relationships. Um, I'm trying to think of an author, because like you, all of you guys, and many of the listeners, I am a I'm a verbal linguistic learner and a wannabe bookworm and a wordsmith. And so I learn best through words. Trying to think of an author that helped me the most, um, owning, owning, owning my power and owning that it was okay to say, I'm a badass at what I've been called to create. I got this. And my confidence and my ambition is not simple. Um, Joan Chittister comes to mind. I want to be here when I grow up, except Catholic. She's (laughs) so, um, yeah. I hope that was what do you have any authors that you would recommend that well that you guys have read the the only one that comes to my mind I recommend this guy all the time but I'm gonna it's good because I think he's I think he's definitely worth reading um there's a guy named John Lynch and he's become a good friend he's actually a really super cool guy but he wrote this book called The Cure and that was the first time I encountered anybody directly Mm -hmm. attacking this sort of worm what I call worm theology you know I'm a red a wretch I am there's no good in me that whole nonsense. Um, and that book, and it's a little book. I mean, I promise you could probably read it in a day if it's really, a, but, but you want to, after you finish it, you're going to go back and read it again. It's just a really powerful, beautiful book. Um, it's not technical or clinical at all. It's actually, he tells a lot of stories and even a lot of allegories and almost parts of it even read almost like a C.S. Lewis, um, you know, novel. And so, but it's a, it's a lot of really beautiful stories and it's just really reframing in our minds that we're not worms and, you know, we're not these, uh, we're not wretches and all that kind of garbage. So that, that's one I recommend. I think is really great. I don't know, do you guys have any, uh, mm. Matt or Jamal, you guys have any oh. books you recommend? I, I don't read anymore. Oh, okay. You, you just like rap. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> he just raps. I just rap. Are there any rappers that you feel are very, uh, that would help with this? Uh, 
No, I think um, when when um, <clears throat> when Meg mentioned differentiation, uh, Meg, have you read David Schnarch? Gesundheit. I'm aware of Schnarch. I had to read. Them. Yeah, <laughs> some of yeah. him in pastoral care classes. Yeah. Okay, I like Schnarch. He has um, he talks about dif- yeah, good, good differentiation a lot. Um, I like his his book, uh, Passionate Marriage. So it talks about oh yeah, um, how we often uh, sort of misconstrue what marriage is really supposed to be like. And we think it's just about basically being attached to the person. He calls it emotional fusion. And what really needs to happen is that we need to stand on our own two feet. We need to be fully differentiated so that we can then live in a better relational way. And I just love that approach because it's not about necessarily your like-mindedness, your like, your like beliefs that are the sim- that are similar or your interests. It's really about fully differentiating from the other person so that you can become actually closer and not just emotionally fused. Because when we're emotionally fused with others, whether it's our spouse or our friends or our congregation, we, we, we're at risk, I think, for having a, a big existential crisis, if, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I, I have another quick question, um, Meg. I mean, when you, were, when you were writing this book, in the back of your mind, did you have sort of a potential like are you writing this for a certain type of person or 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 even a specific person like are you thinking this book is you know i want to speak to this kind of person this book is going to help you know someone who's in this situation do you did you have something in the back of your mind of like um who you wanted this book to speak to i did actually yes i did so the i the when the book first started it i i knew i was obsessed with grit and the lack of grit and grace that i was seeing in minister like i said ministerial leaders and so I wanted to talk about that and how there was so much burnout and what's going on there. And then at a conference, a gentleman asked me, where did this obsession from grit come from? And I realized, ah, oh, crap, it came from my crazy family because they're, <laughs> they're insanely unstoppable and they have so much grit. And so then I, and so then it kind of oh. morphed into this having more memoir like moments. And, um, and then I realized what a weird what a weird case study I would make because I've been on a, I've been a paid church staff member from the ages of 17 to 32. And the majority of those years were on the same church staff. And so what a weird way to grow up in the fishbowl of a church staff. And I did. And so I thought, let's have a little self-deprecating fun and use, use my stories to explore these different parts of this, your own sanctuary. So we talk about the mind and emotions and the spirit, the soul, um, having grace for your body. And what does that look like when you're coming out of purity culture? I'm not answering your question. So all that to say, what I'm so excited and proud of it because it, what it became is is like, as you guys have heard me say, to sound like a broken record, but it became the book baby that Seth Meyers and Sister Joan Chittister had together. And so there's so many satirical, flippant moments that are just ridiculous and 100% accurate, but also there's hopefully some spiritual depth and nourishment for people. So I did narrow it down to uh, people that are spiritually attuned go-getters. And what I, what I mean by spiritually attuned go-getters is that they are very aware of the spiritual dimension of life. They're striving to be spiritually healthy. And at the same time, they are owning their power, their confidence. They love chasing and crushing goals. And um, they're doing it from a place of not only, not only living their best life and reaching their fullest potential, but first and foremost, to serve 
to serve others. And so this is a spiritually attuned go-getters that's probably working their ass off (laughs) and probably wants some respite from the rush of those goals. And so um, I, I picture this book by their bedside table and they're just so spent from chasing goals and crushing it all day. And they're so tired, but they're like, oh, but I just want to laugh one more time before I go to bed. I'm going to, I'm going to pick up I Am My Own Sanctuary again (laughs) to remind me that I am, I am beautifully and wonderfully made. I can wake up tomorrow and crush more goals. And um, yeah, I'm a badass, spiritually attuned go-getter. So that, that is who it's for. There there is, there, there are some moments of cathartic cuss words and the, the purity culture chapter is going to offend people. <laughs> um, and there's tons of neurological research by experts, not like me, but actual experts. And, and so, and then there's tips to find your vocational calling. If you know you're a spiritually attuned go-getter and you want to own your power, but you're like, I'm not sure what I was made to do. There are like, there are five tips that spell it out. And the most exciting thing is that there's going to be a supplemental journal that comes out with the book, oh, wow. maybe not on release day. And it's going to have, we have 10 questions for each six chapter with lines, wow. these lines that are just beckoning you to write on them That's... and reflect through them. So yeah, I am. I'm so, I'm so excited. So, so excited how it's going to serve, serve people. But yeah, that's who, that's who it's for people that want to laugh and aren't afraid of nice words. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds awesome. So uh, can I ask you this? Uh, I'm sorry to put you on the spot. So maybe we'll have to edit this out depending on, <laughs> on your answer. But um, so you're, if you're doing a workbook for this, would or do you think this might also one day become sort of an online course? Hint, hint. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I think you yes, should. Yes, yes, yes. Sounds like a great idea. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That is the plan. This by the time our friends are listening, the book has been out for four days and we're, I'm going to cast a vision. I'm going to manifest this moment. We sold a hundred copies of the book, which means I have the title of the book tattooed on my right arm now, which is awesome. And you shake, and you're going to shave your head, right? I'm going to shave my head. If 150 years old, I'm not gay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Just kidding. I'm way too vain for that. Um, and then if 200 are sold, we're going to do a free, a free online course over the book, a five week um, Zoom course. And so we're going to hope that those things happened by the time you're listening. Um, yeah, but it, it, yeah, the online course is coming for the book. Totally. Awesome. Very cool. Yes. And, and of course, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining you can get it wherever books are sold online. Yes. Definitely. Where, where would I get one of those? Can I get those at uh, the Baptist bookstore or family bookstore or yeah, it's family, family, family Christian? Is family Christian still available? Family Christian stores, yeah. You know, you know what I just realized is my. I just found this out. My first book, it was turned down by eight publishing companies, and um, and then two were interested. Let it be known. But uh, um, <clears throat> but one of them that turned it down, I saw them recently selling it, and they it's a fourteen dollar book, and they were selling it for twenty five dollars. Wow. Isn't that crazy? How does that happen in the world of publishing? It's so funny. That, that is weird. Yeah. Um, wow. Well, I'm just, you know, I'm going to say, Meg, I'm honestly, uh, I'm just so excited that you are part of the choir family. Uh, I'm very excited that this book is out and that, you know, that, I mean, uh, in general, I mean, when I look at, <clears throat> I mean, I'm proud of choir. I'm very proud to be a part of choir and uh, not just kissing up to Ralph, but I love you, Ralph. Um <laughs> 
but uh but, it, but I'm, I'm seriously though i'm very excited because it's 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 uh awesome to sit back and see um new voices like yours kind of coming into the family and saying things that need to be said in the ways they need to be said reaching um audiences that definitely you know need to be spoken to and, and reached uh, with these kind of ideas um i'm just excited uh, i'm so glad and i know this won't be this will not be uh your last book i'm hoping there's many more to come it's the third one's brewing Bring right. it in. Yeah. Do right. it. And I have the honor. I'm reading Rogie's book, Josh Rogie's and, um, and Mark Harris's next book for endorsement. And they're super, uh, to, to no surprise, also um, just amazingly healing reads. So I am, I'm excited to be among great spiritually attuned go-getter content creators. Have we discerned, have we determined when your book comes out? Like when is the release date and where can people get it? Have we have already talked about that? Yeah, yeah, I think we did. Yeah. Say it again. Yeah, d- December sixth. So um very nice. Very so nice. it's out. Enjoy. Go go get it. <laughs> what are you waiting for? Yeah, get it. Yeah. Amazon. If you have any questions, go to megcalvin.com. I'm here to serve you. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Thank you so much, Meg. Yeah. It's been a blast. Thank you guys. Keep up the amazing work. Yeah, you too. Yeah, you're awesome. But your no podcast. more heckling. What was that? <laughs> I said no more heckling as a joke to Matt. <laughs> well, I can't promise anything. Yeah, I wouldn't put a lot of hope in that, actually. <laughs> I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't expect you to. <laughs> <laughs> All right. God bless Meg. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Oh, yeah. Yep. Love, Meg Calvin. Thanks, Meg. Yes. Yeah. And and so excited that your book is out now. So everyone go buy that book. Yeah. Get on it. it. To- totally. And, and I, then, it's know. a book whose t- I believe it's just, it's very timely, you know, especially, um, I just think there's this topic has been, you know, self-care, the, the topic of self-care is kind of taboo in the Christian world. So I'm, I love that she's tackling it. Yeah. yeah. So why, why is it, why is it taboo? Jamal, do you, why, why do you think, why, why, I mean, our topic's going to be self-care. Why is that such a taboo topic? Uh, especially in Christianity, that's a great, that's a great question, Matt. <clears throat> Matt, you're a pro, total pro at this. <laughs> I'm a total. I've been doing this for a while, man. Come on now, <laughs> totally. Well, I think there's, I think that's. I mean, well, I'm sure we'll unpack it in in the conversation, but I think there's a lot of confusion um, about what self even is, um, and I think that confusion mm. of self. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, bad teaching that, you know, I believe the is one of the bedrocks of Christianity. I mean, I think there's these pillars that the Christian religion stands on. One of them, I believe, one pillar is is that, you know, this idea in in the sin nature and the depravity of human beings and that kind of thing. And I think that 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 really runs deep in a lot of um a lot yep. of Christian thinking. So there's there's a misconception about the self. Um there's and I think even the New Testament writers weren't clear on really what the true self really actually was. I think they were growing in that and awakening to that. So there's a lot of passages in the Bible that are used to support uh, what I believe to be an incorrect understanding of self. And so therefore the self is something that is, you know, really needs to be avoided in in most religious or Christian conversation. Yeah. And I think you're right, Jamal. I think it's something that in some ways it's a carryover, um, just from religion in general, right? Um, but I, I, I mean, I think you see in certain things, especially that Paul writes, uh, like in Ephesians and Colossians and things like that, assuming Paul wrote those, <laughs> I don't get into another can of worms, but uh, assuming that <laughs> assuming Paul wrote Ephesians and Colossians, which I don't always do, um, 
But, you know, there, there's some language that does seem to advance the idea that our self is more closely aligned with Christ, which would, which would suggest then it's good, right? So the original goodness. Um, and now, and I, but I also think at the same time, you know, the, uh, some of this toxic teaching of depravity and stuff that comes from Calvinism. Uh, it's sort of weaponizing some verses and it's taking them farther than they need to be taken, even farther than I, than the, you know, uh, than I think is intended, uh, in the passages. So, you know, yeah, we, we as human beings, um, may tend to things that are selfish and self-destructive and, um, that are not, that's not others focused and that, you know, Jesus gives us an, a, a really positive example of, how to do that and and the benefits of doing that. And I think that that's, I mean, I agree with that. I think that's actually a good thing and we should, we should do that. But the problem is the, uh, it's not the Bible. I think it's mostly Bible teachers that have twisted that to mean, therefore your basic nature is evil and twisted and, you know, there's no good in you. And, you know, this whole worm theology nonsense, um, yeah, like I think it, I think it gets taken much farther than it needs to be taken. Like you can, you can talk about um, Christ, the supremacy of Christ, without <clears throat> adding to that sort of this worm nature of humanity. Like that's those two things don't necessarily need to go together. Uh, unfortunately, they do. But again, I think that sort of worm nature of humanity is mostly uh invented like i don't really see think you can find a whole lot of passages where at least passages where god is the one supposedly saying that we're unworthy and that we are you know uh all that like i think you see we say that people say that we might say that about ourselves uh, someone in, like david may say you know what a wretch i am and all that um but that's what we're saying that may be our tendency to do that to ourselves but i don't think you ever see Jesus saying that to us or, or God saying that about us, like we kind of create that narrative, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and I just, I think that is a part of how we as humans sort of function. And what I mean by that is, is that we tend to take the pendulum and swing it way too far. Yeah. And I think most of the time, like the truths of the universe seem paradoxical rather than one side or the other at first. And then we realized, well, there's a whole nuancing to to this whole thing called truth. Yeah, on one hand, we could be total wretches. We could, I, I could be a pretty bad piece of shit. Like I totally can, but I would never, I would never want to take it too far and say I'm like totally depraved mm-hmm. and I'm totally wretched. And I think we always have to strike that balance and find um, maybe in Buddhism what would be called the middle way. <laughs> and there's the, the there's this. Um, I think it's okay to say that our self, our true self, is totally good, totally Christ-like, and uh, totally whatever. Um, we're made in the image of love, all this good stuff. And at the same time, be totally depraved at some point. Like, I, like in a certain way, like, yeah, we are depraved. We, are, we, are, we can be wretches. Um, but at the same time, like, that's not our true nature. It's original goodness. Yeah. And then we read the wretchedness in that context. We we don't we don't read the goodness in the context that we are total wretches, and that's where like the Calvinists get it twisted. They get it backwards. We are originally good. Our self is to be made like Christ, or 
uh, Brahman, if you want to use Buddhist language. And then, and then there's this obvious part of us that uh, is not so good. But that's in the context of the goodness. Yeah, yeah. I think when people say self, those are those are <clears throat> yeah, those are good thoughts. I, I think I think what you're what I hear you saying, Matt, is that it depends on which self you're talking about. Because I do think that there's more than one self sure. at play in a, in a given person's life. So, for example, um, you know, and there's confusion. Or, or it's not clear in the Bible. It's the writers of the scriptures. There, you know, it's not always clear what self they're referring to. So, right. and I think some of them weren't even aware of, of their full self. Um, that's why I think it can be helpful to look to Jesus in this regard. So, if we look, because Jesus is our standard. He's like us. He's the, he's the the child of mankind. You know, he's always referencing back to his humanity. He never references anything other than that. So, everything that he says comes in the context or out of the flow of this is. Like what Paul says in Philippians two, he took on a servant, you know, the lowest of, of humanity. So everything he's going to demonstrate in his life is as a human. So that's where I think, okay, how did Jesus understand this concept of self? I think it's a really important question. But there are some unhelpful verses that I think should be pointed out that just have come to my attention. There's a, you know, there's a verse where Paul says, you know, it's, you know, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. So the life I now live, I live by faith in the son of God. And so when people will take about that, like, so yeah, so you, you know, you die to yourself and then Christ lives through you. Or there's another, there's other passages that reference um, the unworthy nature of humanity. You know, I think there's a passage in Revelation that talks about, you know, no one was found worthy in heaven or on earth to open the scrolls except for, you know, Jesus. So there's these, and I actually think those are bunk. You know, those concepts, those ideas, what's communicating there, it's not, those are unhelpful and they come from a limited, I, my understanding is that that's a very limited perspective on the self. So self, I think there's a, there's a couple, there's, there's really three, there's like two major, you know, categories of self. And then there's one that's within that kind of a subcategory. But when people talk about self and again, what you identify with the self you identify with is really the life you live. So there's a one category of self, in my opinion, uh, in my understanding, is the self that is really has a has a birthday, has the start, has the end. You know, you, you know, you 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 your name is, you know, my name is Jamal. I was born on a certain day. Um, then my concept of self comes out of how my parents, you know, saw me or treated me, or and then the, I begin to adopt views of myself based on my interactions and all other things. And I have a whole story, and this is myself. That self can have a, you know, has a has a story, but also can you have a shadow side as well? There's another subcategory in that self where your emotional self and how things have affected you, and those are all legitimate parts of self. But there's also, and again, Jesus referenced that part of himself as well. So if you look at Jesus, when he talked about self, he said some things like, you know, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but that what the, the son sees the father doing, that's what, that's what I do. So, you know, he would, or not my will, let yours be done in the garden. So he's referencing a smaller self, which is his human storied self. Like we can all relate to that. The problem is, is that predominantly that's all people ever know as their self is that small S, that small self. When people like the caller who talked about annihilationism or eternal conscious torment, people are referencing that small self as what happens to that self. And that's part of the problem because that's really not who you are. That's, that, that self is temporary. 
That self is dualism, but there's another self, and this is where it gets controversial. There's another self Jesus referenced, and that is the divine self, the Christ self. When he said, before Abraham was born, I am. When he talked about, I must be about my father's business, he's not referencing Joseph. This is the I am divine self. I believe that is very much a part of who we are in our identity as well. And I think that is what's missing from the Christian conversation. There's a, there's a blindness to the divine self. And all we reference and all we live according to is the small self. And that causes all the problems and all of our suffering, in my opinion. Mm. So are you, are you suggesting then, to go back to the topic, that in order to care for that self, we have to first recognize that? That, that capital S self is a part of the divine. Yes, I, I think I, absolutely. So when people talk about self-care, you know, I'm sure Meg gets into this in her book, a part of self-care is taking time to just, to, taking time to go in, inside internally. So when Jesus would even talk about like the kingdom of heaven, it's within you. Like there's this, I think a false misnomer that somehow, and this is how I always understood it and was taught in the Christian world was like, we're like these bottles these empty, you know, clay pots, these, these worthless clay pots that are just cracked and messed up. And inside is some treasure. That treasure inside is not us, by the way. It's Christ. It's God. You are worthless, but there's God inside of you. And that's what makes you worth, worth anything. And that's, that's a, I think a very limited and unhelpful understanding of really the essence of who Jesus never talked about himself that way. He never referenced himself as some worthless thing, you know, container that's possessed by a spirit, i.e., God. So we're not we're not people who are possessed by God. We literally are the image in very exact nature. We are the essence of the divine in human form, like we say Jesus is incarnate. You know, this is my understanding. This is controversial. By no means is this widely accepted. That's why. You know, that's why Christians don't believe this. <laughs> but I firmly believe if you, my understanding is like, if you look at Jesus, here's a person who knew his essence, his higher self. So to be, to, to come back to that is like self care would be to come inside, to get quiet. One of the passages I love the most where it says, be still and know that I am. To say, be still, and know that I am God is redundant because the name of God is I am. So, I mean, that's the name of God as I am. You can't actually say the name of God without self-reference. I, I don't know if you guys know that or caught that. You actually can't say God's name without using it in the first person. And I think that's where he becomes really um, mind-bending in a sense when you start to come inside and realize, oh, the self, this is the self that is literally when you claim being, I am, you are claiming a divine statement like Jesus did. So this is what I think is very unknown and misunderstood. Um, and, and again, to come back to self-care is like, yes, to come back to awareness of this self, this place of being. So let, can I ask? Yeah. Uh, well, I think, uh, go, go for oh, it, I was just going to ask. Um, so if our topic is self-care, we haven't yet really got to, I mean, we've done a good job, I think, of defining self. Um, but what, what, what is self-care and what, what does that look like? And why is that important? Well, I mean, I, why is it important? I think, uh, well, <laughs> Jesus makes this, this statement, love your neighbor as yourself. And to me, it's important. <laughs> I, I don't know. This is where I, I, I have a disconnect from where Christian, most Christians view themselves as. I don't know how you can love others or love God if you don't love yourself in a certain way. If you think of yourself as a wretched worm, 
How can you view your neighbor as anything other than how you view yourself? And how are you supposed to love them if you view yourself as a mm-hmm. wretched worm? Well, can I, yeah. And, and can, about that though, can I just say, I, did, I just, I mean, I, I don't, I don't disagree with the thought process that, you know, you can't love other people if you don't love yourself. Like I, I, I if you just said that statement alone, I would agree. And I think actually, um, like for example, a few years ago, my mind was blown about the reality of the, of the, this, the reciprocal nature of this, uh, when Jesus says, you know, the greatest command is to love God and to love others, right? The two greatest commands, right? All the laws is uh, summarized in this, love God and love others. But, but it's not a one-way street. Like I have to, I have to not only as an individual, I have to not only learn how to love God and love others. I have to learn how to first, I would say, I need to learn how to receive love from God. And then I need to learn mm. how to receive love from others. Because if, I, if I'm in a room with 10 people and all of them are trying to follow those two commands, love God and love others, but none of us is willing to receive love from God or from other people in the room, we will all fail at those two commands. Because if, if I'm, if, in other words, you can't love me if I won't let you, right? If I'm not receiving love from you, you can, you can knock yourself out trying to love me, it, but I'm, I'm shut off. I'm closed up to it and I'm not, I'm not putting myself in a position to receive it. So for me personally, that was a huge epiphany. Like, oh my gosh, man, I'm, I, I frankly don't even think I know how to receive love from God. Like I, I had not thought about it. And I re- actually, when, I'm, when I started to think about it, I realized that I really wasn't very good at receiving love from God or from others. You know, um, it's a, because you have to be vulnerable. You have to open yourself up. You have to, there's the potential that another person could hurt you, right? If I'm going to open myself up to love from another person. And so those for me are big, big things like that, that it needs for, for that idea of loving God and loving others to be fulfilled. Um, we have to be people who first learn to receive love. Yeah. And I think, I think one of the hardest things to, to learn how to receive from is yourself. Because I don't even think that's even understood because again, the idea is, well, we, our perception of self is that we're lacking. So it's like, you, you don't, you don't, we're looking for something to receive from. A lot of people are looking to God They're going, yeah, I need God to, to fill me up because I feel empty. And they're looking outside of themselves. This is the problem of the external God, which by the way, is not what Jesus, Jesus did not talk about an external God. This is, this is the creation. This is, this comes out of a misperception. So people, it's an illusion. We look for, you know, God out there. So we're looking for God to, to, to love us so that we can receive that love, but you're not going to find that God out there. There is no God out there. All you have is self. Good news is it's in that self. The oneness of within yourself is where you find the divine. And so like the reason I think it's important to love yourself in order to love other people is because can you think, I mean, think about like walking down a street and to somebody's thirsty, dying of thirst, and you just, you have like water to give them and you don't give them that water. Well, that's not, that's not love. So first you would have to give them water, but in order for you to have water to give them, you have to get that water. Where are you going to go get that water? Like, where is that water found? That water is only found in that place of stillness within your being, which is what Jesus references the kingdom of heaven within you. Or when, you know, the still, the knowledge of the divine comes through stillness. What, what do you find in stillness? You, you are present with yourself and that's where God is. But that's also where you are. So that's the idea. You receive from self, from that place of being. So you, you know, being still, you become aware of I am, which is, by the way, first person, which is presence, which is being itself. 
that's what you, so self-care, learning to love the small self is to get, get to know your big self because the only person that can love the small self is yourself. Yeah. I the big self. But, and, and, it, and how is that done? Is that done through meditation? Is that done through daily affirmations? Um, I mean, how do, how do, how do we, how do we care for that self? In, in the in the practical day to day that's a great question and that's 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 the million dollar question where the the rubber meets the road I do think it comes through awareness of the big self but how do you get to where become aware of that I think there's a lot right, of ways right. but one of the one of the time tested ways and this has been demonstrated for thousands of years is people just breathing just breathing hmm. literally I know that sounds crazy but it's like yeah I, you can know everything you need to know about God through breath and awareness <laughs> this goes way beyond just cognitive information that you feed your brain. This is, this is true knowledge that comes from your spiritual essence. It comes through breath, through connection with self. So you could do that through meditation. You can do it through mindfulness practices. There's, there's definitely lots of different ways, but prayer, what is prayer? It's just, it's, it's tuning into the conversation. There's already a conversation going on in, at the level of spirit. My understanding is that prayer is something that happens all the time without ceasing. It's like always, but what, what is, what is that? That's your breath. And then at that level, there is, it's constant. Consciousness is all the time. And once you become tap into that, you usually have to stop what you're doing though, to, to get aware of that. You have to stop. And, and this is why, and Meg talks about this in her book, this is why clergy are so burned out. They're the least people that know about God. They know information about God, but they don't, they don't live from a knowledge of God because they're so busy this is the problem because you're, we have to stop what we're doing in order to actually um, care for the self because, you know, but people, you know, we're, we're, we're drilled in. Like if you just sit and breathe, what are you accomplishing? Yeah. I, so, and that's, that's what we're yeah, I would, um, I just want to reflect back a, a couple of things that you said, Jamal, and cause, cause here's the, here's the thing I think though, in reality, like I'm going to, it's going to sound like I'm disagreeing with you on a, on some terminology, but I think where you and I would align is the practice. So um, we may, in other words, we may, be, we may be thinking of the mechanism in slightly different terminology, but I think at the end of the day, what we would both sit down next to each other and do would look very similar. So uh, like for me, going back to what you were saying, like, I agree with you, the idea that God is being outside of myself is, is the wrong idea. Like to say that, well, where is, where is Jesus? Where is Christ? Where is, where is God? A lot of Christians think he's up there somewhere. And we're waiting for Jesus to come back. We can't wait for him to get back because then it'll be great. Um, but that again, I agree with you. Jesus doesn't say that. But I would say actually that um, that what I would, I well, the way I think of it is I'm connecting with the God who is inside of me. So it isn't me. I, I would not call it myself. I would say like when Jesus says, abide in me and I will abide in you, or that if you love me, my father and I will love you and we will, the father and I will come and make our home in you, that that's what Jesus is wanting us to understand is that God is within us. That um, And so what I'm connecting to is not a God out there. I'm a, I am connecting to a God or a Christ within who, who dwells within me, abides within me. And by connecting to and abiding in, that to me, that's what Jesus is talking about. This abiding in Christ is connecting with the God who is closer to me than my own heartbeat, closer to me than my own breath, and even my own, to my, closer to me, to myself than my own self, right? It, it is a... Uh, uh, a connection to the divine that uh, there's no seam. You can't tell where one ends and the other begins, right? And so for me then, yes, the way the way I would connect with uh, with this Christ who abides within, to God who lives within me, um, 
this is my source for love. Like, like so going like talking about like with the water walking down the street, I would say I get that water from Christ who is the living water. And he, by, by again, like the learning to receive love from God is important because I, I need to receive that love from God so that I have love within me to give to someone else. Um, and so the way it would look for me is that, yeah, I would get quiet. I would breathe. I would close my eyes. I would sit in silence. I would, I would uh, make myself aware of the reality that God loves me and he is within me and he always has been and he always will be. And so the, the process, yeah, yeah. So the terminology might be slightly different, but I think at the end of the day, what you're doing and what I'm doing look uh, a lot the same and the effect is the same. Right now. I, I, I think we do have probably have very similar practices, but Keith, I will say the difference here is, is, is significant because Again, we're we're talking about what when we say it's it's Christ in me. There's there's a, there's a distinction that's being made. There's Christ, and then there's me, and they're not the same thing. But I don't think that distinction is really. Yeah, well, this has um, always been this has always been valid. The, the disagreement and the you reason, and I have, right, is that I would say Christ is in me, and you would say Christ is me, right, right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And you and all of us and everything. But I, here's the, here, here's why I make, I think this is an important point because again, now this, this is not a new, this is not a new distinction or new, or new, you know, disagreement or whatever. I think you can find this even in the scriptures. So in John chapter one, the writer of the gospel of John in, Jap- in chapter one said, he's talking about, you know, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. But then a few verses later, he goes in and says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Now, that's an interesting distinction. So it's, it's okay. This, so John the Baptist is not the light of the world, but he came to testify about the light. This is coming from the writer of that gospel. That's the perspective. But there's a contradiction here because later on, Jesus, I think, kind of corrects the perception. And he says, I am the light of the world. And no one argues with that. But then his his biggest contribution, I think, one of the things that he's trying to drill in the minds of the disciples are, but so are you. So he would disagree. I don't think the writer of this gospel was really clear about that. So Jesus' words are, but so are you the light of the world. He actually claimed that he wasn't the only one that's the light of the world. And he didn't say, hey, if you do the things I say, or if you you know pray the, the sinner's prayer, or if you're baptized, you're the light. No, no. He just said, this is who you are, but no one takes a light and hides it under a bed. So that indicates they're, oh, somebody's under a bed, some under a bushel. There's a light that's being covered up. And how is it being covered up? Because we don't know who we are. So he's correcting it. You are also the light of the world. He's speaking as a man. So it's incorrect to say Jesus is the light, but we're not. So, and guess what God is, by the way, God is light. So this is when we start to grow in our understanding of self, this is where I think the distinction starts to go away. It's like, yeah, what's God, what's self? Uh, we don't know because the same things apply to all of us. I'm like, this <laughs> yeah. is, I know this is the, this is the distinction. This is why I think it's important because that, that disagreement is even found in John, in the gospel of John itself. I think, yeah, I think so too. We're both right. <laughs> I think, I think you guys are both right. To be honest with you. It just depends. It just depends on which self you're referencing. I I truly. I well. I mean, I can quote John Calvin, and I no, think don't do that. Even, don't do that. Even Calvin no. says. I mean, if, I'm going to. Nah, <laughs> fuck, fuck off, Keith. Um, a quote. <laughs> 
Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected together by many ties, it is not easy to, to determine which of the two precedes and gives birth to the other. And I think that's really wise. And I, because it's, it's like our knowledge of God and our knowledge of self is so intertwined that right. we're, it's like the chicken and the egg thing. Yeah. And, and, and that's, why, that's why I would say, both. I, I, you guys say you're disagreeing. I'm not sure if you are, but maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I don't know. Well, no, that's what I, well, well no, this, that's what I was trying to say in the beginning was that I don't think, I think that Jamal and I disagree on some terminologies about how we get there, but I think where he and I both get is, is pretty much the same. Yeah, I think- I just think you define it differently than I define it. You might use different terminology than I would. I just than I would use. I think we would describe the mechanism slightly different. But at the end, what you and I are doing and practicing are exactly the same. Right. I just think it's important when somebody how somebody understands themselves. You know, because I because I and again in my coaching work, I'm dealing with people all the time, and you, where we see major breakthroughs is when people's perception of self radically elevates. So for example, I think it's really powerful. It, it's, it's really, it makes people cringe. I say, look yourself in the mirror. I know it sounds cliche and all that, but like, look yourself in the mirror or, or tell somebody you love, say, Hey, you know, I just want you to know that I am the light of the world. <laughs> you watch the reactions you get. People will roll their eyes. They're like, Oh, this crazy. You're crazy. You're a cult leader, whatever. It's like, but like Jesus referenced himself. I'm the light of the world. Didn't bat an eye. What if we could be like that? What if we are actually the light of the world? Isn't that the, that's the whole point? It's like, I, I don't think Jesus points to himself exclusively in these matters. And I think that's the, the fatal error of Christianity is it does. It points to Jesus exclusively. It's a misnomer. He ceases to be an example then, in my opinion, he ceases to be an example for us if we point to him, if we point to him. So we, we have to come back and go, who are we? Like, it's not who do we say God is. It's who do we say we are? Yeah. Well, I think that's the, that. I, th- I think we got to keep exploring this, but um, a little birdie is telling me that we're running out of time, which which brings me to the next point. We're going to carry this conversation on into the next round. And if you want to get the next round, you got to go to patreon.com slash heretic happy hour and sign up. And we're going to give you all bonus content because this conversation needs to keep going. And it also needs to keep going in our Facebook group, Heretic Happy Hour podcast which is exclusively for Patreon supporters. So please jump in on this conversation and give us your thoughts in that after you sign up and subscribe on Patreon. Yep. And uh, then after you do that, you need to go to the heretichappyhour.com website where not only can you listen to episodes and download a lot of really cool stuff. Oh my gosh, do we have an awesome store full of incredible t-shirts and pillows. Oh my gosh, please get these throw pillows. Buy one for your grand. Buy one for your, your favorite aunt or uncle. Uh, especially if they're like a really strong evangelical Christian with a, with scripture verses that will blow their minds if they actually read, look them up <laughs> and read them. Um, it'll be it'll be so much fun. Trust me. <laughs> yes, and I believe we are. Um, we we have a live show coming up. Hell yeah. yes! Woo-hoo. Oh yes, that's right. Are you coming? Are you guys coming? I think I'll be there. Yeah, <clears throat> I'll try. I'll try to make it. If there's free I'm donuts, there. yeah, I'll be there. Yes, yes. It's going to be at the sidecar offices in Costa Mesa on January, Saturday, Saturday, January 4th. And I believe those usually start around 630. Mm -hmm. So come on out um, and uh, bring your coffee mugs. uh, (laughs) Fill it with booze. Fill it with lots of booze and donuts. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And also we are now on iTunes. If you'd like to go and rate us and review us. Judges. Give us a judgment. (laughs) Rate us, please. (laughs) 